Hey, it's Ralph here. Q1 is now closing and it probably didn't go as well as you had hoped, but I'm sure your agency is probably telling you that they crushed it. But in reality, it crushed you. If your agency isn't on the same page as you are, if there's something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on what that thing is, go on over to tier11.com forward slash apply. It will set you up on a call to show you a better way to look at your business, not just metrics that make us agencies look good, but something that actually moves the needle and makes you more money, acquires more new customers, and ultimately achieves your vision. Head on over to tier11.com forward slash apply today. Hello and welcome to the Perpetual Traffic Podcast. This is your host, Ralph Burns, and this is the show where we share cutting-edge strategies on acquiring leads and sales to acquire more customers for your business. And it seems like it's been a long time since it's just been me and you, Kasim, doing this show. The way it should be, Ralph. I know. I know. It feels like, feels like home. It feels like I'm, you know, I'm at ease. I'm comfortable. You know, there's no guests, outside influences. We can just talk about the stuff. Let your hair down. Let my hair down. If I had hair, like your hair, I would let it down. But my hair is down. Your, your hair is totally down. I notice you're not tying it back like you used to. Is that like a. Yeah, it depends on the day. Yeah. It's a mood thing. I think I told you this once. I had an analysis of my YouTube channel done. Shout out to our boy, Tom Breeze. And Tom Breeze is building this really cool software that identifies inflection points on your videos. And those inflection points are when either people drop off or more people start watching, paying attention, engaging, et cetera. And there's two inflection points on solution state videos. Inflection point number one is when we start to go screen share which makes sense because it's a Google Ads channel. And so people want to know when you're going to start actually showing them how to run Google Ads. And inflection point number two is when my hair was down. We had more views on our videos and engaged and retained longer when my hair was down versus when my hair was up. Who figured? And I'm not here to argue with the people, Ralph. Who figured that out though? Did Tom? I don't think Tom figured it out. I think Tom gave me the data and then I was coming through it and I noticed either all the spikes that I saw in the graph were screen sharing or hair down. Huh. That's wild. You know who else I talked to about this though? You know Brandon Turner. Yeah, yeah. Beardy Brandon. So he's probably, I think, maybe my favorite influencer. I think he just does such a phenomenal job with his content. But he talked to me about his beard. He's like, dude, the beard, I almost couldn't do it without the beard. Because he's so recognizable and it's so unusual. You know what I mean? So I think if you're listening to this and you're creating social content, you'll notice a lot of people do this. Seth Godin does it. It's always shaved head glasses. Uh, Rand Fishkin did it. He looked like a pirate. Ezra Firestone did it. Ryan Dice, maybe to a smaller extent, but always in that suit, but with the no tie, unbutton, top button. So I think some of the more recognizable influencers made themselves, oh, Rudy Maurer, dude. Look at Rudy, always in bright red. You'll never catch that dude in anything but bright, 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 bright red. So it's just a form of peacocking, but it really helps for brand identification. There's a guy I follow on Instagram, Chris Doe. He's an agency guy, actually, who's really cool. And he talks about like your look. Yeah. And he's got a very specific look. And we'll leave links in the show notes for his Instagram because it's really good. We've got a lot of agency owners here. And his stuff is really solid. I'm not sure how much agency stuff he does versus info, but his whole thing is like you need a look. You know, if you're going to be an influencer, if you're going to be an authority in the space, or you want to do personal branding, like that is your look. So, you know, whatever that thing is, go and do it. And I've noticed everyone at Tier 11, for example, has their own social channels. We encourage that. I mean, we obviously, like Tier 11 is the home, you know, they're employees of Tier 11, but it's like you should have other outside interests. And everyone obviously enjoys social media. 
And I've noticed that they all sort of have their own individual look. And I'm like, that's cool. Like they're developing their own brand. I get it sort of under some of the influence that we might have here at Perpetual Traffic or Tier 11, but it's good. They get it. Like our VP of marketing is like, we give him a hard time all the time because he looks like Tom Selleck. He's got the mustache and that like, he's been on this show and that's his look. I think it is important to have that, especially if you are the brand. In the case of Ryan Dice, Dice was always blue jacket, but then he sort of stepped away. Great example of how to take a personality business and actually step away from it a bit, which is what... Well, dude, I think he had a hard time doing that, though. I, think I don't he think did. It, I don't think you could rip the Band-Aid off. I think there was a wrestle there because people really wanted Ryan. So that's the double-edged sword to building the personality business is you, you are that business. Yeah, you are. And we talked to Greg about this when Greg was on. It's like, how do you create a sellable business? Well, you create a sellable business where you are not the center of the universe. We didn't get as much into it. We have to have him back for a second time, but you have to create systems. He's been live today, by the way. That's right. Well, make sure we go out and get it. And let's give him a plug just because we love Greg. Yeah. Greg Smith, my business mentor of 20 years, has helped both me and Ralph in various degrees. Amazing M&A guy, published a book called No Locked Doors. Buy it wherever books are sold. Go head over to Amazon, snap it up, leave him a review. Good dude. We will leave links in the show notes for that as per usual, but definitely check it out. We'll also leave a link back to the show that we did with him as well, because I think you'll get a lot from it. It's interesting. Like We're so immersed in this media and just the business that we're in to get a complete outsider's viewpoint with different industries and his background, running two airlines banks. It's crazy. Like His input and insight into the advertising industry is just... I find it refreshing just to get his insights. Obviously, that's a great episode, I think, that we did with him and want to have him back. But also, I think that's another thing that people should do is go outside of their industry for advice and for insights into... You know, like I belong to a group called Vistage, which is a great CEO group. I really, really like it because there's manufacturing businesses, there's consultants, there's like nobody's in advertising and marketing, which is kind of fun because I'm the advertising marketing guy. But then I learn about the plastics business and there was the guy that now is in the cannabis business. Like that's fascinating to me. And we delve deep into it. And I learned so much every single month. But you don't remember any of it, did you? I don't remember any of it. We actually went to his manufacturing (laughs) facility and he did not hand out free samples, which I was kind of pissed off about. No, you got to take those. Got to expect that. Yeah, should then. So definitely go check that out over on Amazon, No Locked Doors, Greg Smith, author. Before we get into today's show, which is a really interesting one, and I think it's relevant. We were just sort of talking about this before we hit record, which is why your job is not doing your job anymore in media buying. And me coming from the meta side, we still do a lot of Google. You guys do a lot of Google and now might be even doing some meta. Interesting sort of convergence of worlds. This is a big thing right now. And I think it runs counter to what a lot of media buyers and the people that are not necessarily even buying media, maybe overseeing media buyers need to know about. If you're a CMO, you're director of marketing, you need to know what's really going on in media buying. And it's Doing your job is actually not doing your job. So we're going to get into that in just a second. But before we get into that, I'm going to give two updates, Kasim. First off, Remarkable 2 is nothing, is it remarkable? Sh- it, nothing short of remarkable. Did I just steal your line? You I'm did. So sorry. You did. It's, 
So we talked about like that customer journey, and I haven't actually seen their follow-up sequence as of yet, but I think just as a general rule, this is a tremendous tool. And if you write, <laughs> you start to do things a little bit old school like me, I don't like typing and talking. Like when I'm doing the show, I'd much rather write stuff down. When Kasim says something brilliant or not so brilliant, I want to write that down so I remember it. And then we talk You're gonna about- You're going to need it. a bigger remarkable. going to need a bigger remarkable. So I have the extra large remarkable for our podcast shows. Uh, but no, it's absolutely tremendous. And you can upload PDFs into it. You can upload Word documents. I went to a quarterly meeting two weeks ago in Dallas, and we had this PDF that was the playbook for the entire meeting. I just uploaded it into the remarkable- wrote my notes in the margin. It was nothing short of remarkable. Am I going to say that again? So there is that. That's an update. And I should probably get an affiliate link for that customer. We should. I was going to say, do you buy stock, Ralph? I don't know. I love the journey itself and the product met expectations, even though it costs like $600, which is crazy. But we did figure out a hack. Your little hack here is the... I don't want to say the case. It's called something else. The case is actually way cheaper if you get the case for the thing on Amazon. Probably save yourself like a hundred bucks there. So there is that. So there's one update. Second update is we started, I think in our last episode, we were talking about AI video tools. I know you had video.ai, I believe it was. We were testing Opus. That's opus.pro. And it is fabulous. And now we're going to see exactly how we use this. There's two ways, I think, to use it. For example, this this show is recorded and we threw the raw video into Opus and said, create X amount of short clips. What came out of it was something that was a little bit less than fully polished. It does come out like 90% of the way there. It does pick out interesting parts of the video, which are the most relevant and useful potentially for social. We'll sort of see how they respond on our socials. We're actually running a split test right now on our Instagram for Opus videos versus handmade videos. And right now on Reels, the Opus videos are actually winning engagement-wise. So really interesting tool. Are they shorter? They're not necessarily shorter. I have not used it. This is our staff that does this, but they all seem to be about 45 to 60 seconds and our human-made ones through our excellent editors at Tier 11 are right about the same, but different clips from the same video. So they go through manually figure out, okay, where is something intelligent that Ralph and or Kasim says or a guest or whatever then they create a short form video around that. Whereas Opus, I think you tell them that you want 45 seconds, 60 seconds, and it does it automatically. The end result, and I sent you a couple of the end results, they weren't bad. Like They definitely needed some end polish there. So I think it's a tool that we're going to continue to use here. Video.ai is the next one that we want to test out. But this is a productivity enhancer in my mind, you know, and the subject of today's episode is leveraging the intelligence of the platforms to make you better, which doesn't necessarily mean working more. It just makes you more efficient. And I think video is one of those things in AI that, man, there's an awful lot of opportunity here. So well, a good episode of reference is the one that we did on cost per content, because what everybody needs to buy into is the fact that it's a quantity game, which by the way, is repellent. 
to the world. All marketing people hate the idea that it would be quantitative, not qualitative. All business owners hate that idea. And honestly, the, the end user hates that idea too. But when you realize that it's algorithmically derived and you need to give YouTube shorts 10 videos for it to figure out which one is going to get reach, you start to realize that, okay, it really will end up being a quality game over time, but the input is quantitative and the output is qualitative. And tools like Opus are what allow you to do that. Because if one person had to make all of those short clips all by their lonesome without the help of AI, they're just going to get outran. Yeah, it's true. This is the world in which we live now. I mean, it's no longer about, oh, I'm going to carefully craft this one video and it's going to take me days and weeks and lots of post-production and all of these things when in fact, it's just really about like pump out more of this stuff. Like it, the content's got to be good at the front end. And we're going to leave links in the show notes to a video from Alex Ramosi. We keep talking about this guy. We've, we've got to get him on the show here. You, we can't get him. Nobody can get him. We tried to get him in <laughs> my mastermind. Big. Perry said this. He's too big. He's like, dude, Alex, he's just, he's too wanted. It's like trying to cast DiCaprio in your film. Unless you're Tarantino, you just don't get him. Oh, we'll see. We keep saying it. So anyway, but the point is, is he actually has a great video on this subject, which I think caps a lot. This is the reason why he's popular, is that he captures a lot of the things that people think are not necessarily the way that it should be. He's counterintuitive in his thinking and business. And one of his tenets is exactly what you said. It's all about volume. Dude, I think I think the guy's a modern day philosopher. I don't even think he's a marketer anymore. Like his Twitter feed alone, he reminds me of uh, Naval Ravikant. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll leave links there. So anyway, so there's two updates, a little bit of an AI update and then the remarkable update. And we should probably get the remarkable people like on the show. That's what we should do is like, that'll be our gift. How did you snare Ralph? Yeah. How did you snare me? And what's your ascension? Because they can't be banking on $2 a month forever. Like there's got to be more, there's got to be more there. Yeah. What's the next thing that's coming yeah. up? Yeah. What's my next thing? Because they do automatic software upgrades. That's costing me a thing at this point. There is like a data plan, but haven't done that. So it's a one-time purchase. So they've got some holes in their game. But anyway, bottom line is that it's a great tool for me, at least. So, all right, well, we will get into the why your job is not doing your job in today's episode and how it relates back to AI and algorithms right after this quick break. You're listening to Perpetual Traffic. Well, there is no question that when it comes to influence and persuasion in digital marketing, no one, and I mean no one, commands more respect than Dr. Robert Cialdini. If you have never read his books, Influence and Persuasion, I swear you are missing so much in your digital marketing, not only as an influencer and an advertiser, but as just a great marketer. And that's why I'm so excited to invite you to a free webinar where he'll be sharing his latest insights on new e-commerce strategies. Now, alongside Dr. Cialdini, you'll learn from Bass Wouders and the authors of Reputation King, my buddy Scott Branley, 
and DJ Sprague. Attendees will absolutely be able to understand exactly how to gain a competitive edge in the marketplace by leveraging online reputation management. Now, that's something that we haven't talked about here on this show all that much. And it's more reason for you to register for the webinar here, which is completely free over at reputationking.com forward slash PT. So join us on April 18th from 12 noon to 2 p.m. Eastern. That's 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Pacific for you West Coasters by registering at reputationking.com forward slash PT. Once again, that's reputationking.com forward slash PT. Cialdini has been a huge influence on me. and I can't wait to see how his new e-commerce strategies resonate with you and how they affect your business in a positive way using reputation management. Make sure that you register for the April 18th free webinar at reputationking.com forward slash PT. All right, so we are back here. We're talking about why your job is not doing your job in media buying anymore. What do we mean by this? What are we getting at? It's a cute little title, Kasim, which you and I hatched up pre-record, but what does it actually mean? Let's maybe talk about on the Google side, how things have changed, especially in the last year for Google media buyers, like Performance Max in particular. How has media buying changed literally in the last year, probably more so than any other time in our history? Two things, if you don't mind. The first is an analogy, and then the second is a story. Sometimes examples are helpful. So the analogy that I use in my keynote is media buying used to be driving a Formula One race car. And when you're driving a Formula One race car, you're flying down the road at 300 miles an hour or whatever, and you're making dozens of decisions every second. You are driving, you're in control, and you're tweaking and moving, and you've got knobs and levers and pulleys and whatever. You're driving. Well, because machine learning and AI have found their event horizon, we've moved from Formula One race car driving to interstellar space travel at the speed of light. And there's a big difference between driving a Formula One race car and driving a spaceship at the speed of light, which is you actually don't get to drive the spaceship. You get to tell it where to go. You service the spaceship, but you're you're not driving. And for someone who's used to driving, they just don't understand that. But if you try to tweak the spaceship, we all die. One hair, one millimeter, one degree off, and you're either landing in the wrong solar system or you're just dead. So that's the analogy. Here's the example. We had a client, have a client, who we hadn't made a change in their account for seven months. Seven months. Seven months. It's insane, Ralph. When you think about it, you know, we're talking about a type of work that used to have dozens of changes a day, and we end up with this client. We haven't made a single change in their account for seven months. Now, we've done other things. There's on-site recommendations. There's feed optimizations. There's work that can be done on the periphery, but we hadn't made any changes inside the Google account for seven months. So we get to the end of the road for the things that we could do outside of Google, and inside the app, it was like, man, there's actually really nothing for us to do here. It's scaling adequately. They're in a really tight niche. And so there was nowhere for us to go beyond what was being made available. It was as efficient as it was going to get. We did our job, basically. And you know, you never want to work yourself out of a job, but sometimes it's bittersweet, but it's a nice thing to be able to come to the client and be like, hey, our work here is done. And it was such an awkward conversation because we came to them and said, look, we haven't made any changes in the last seven months. Everything that we wanted to do offsite and with your feet is done. There's really nothing left for us to do. And then the client asked what I thought was a really intelligent question. He goes, well, so should somebody still watch it? And we were like, yeah, probably. Like, you know, things change, markets change, technology changes. So yeah, you should still have somebody monitor it, but we don't have any changes to make. And he goes, well, who should I have monitor that? 
And the answer was, well, probably somebody who knows Google Ads. And he was like, all right, well, I mean, like hiring somebody in-house is going to be expensive. Doesn't it make sense for me to continue to have you guys monitor our account? And we were like, I mean, as long as we're on the same page as far as what it is that we're doing here, it was interesting. And it's always fun when the client turns it around on you and helps you see your own value proposition. Because I thought my value proposition was tweaking and it wasn't. And he showed that plainly. He's like, look, dude, I just want you to worry. As long as you're looking at things on a regular basis and you are worrying about my account, then I think we'll be in good shape. Now, that account really is an anomaly. Out of 200 clients, I have one like that. But every single client, we're seeing a massive diminishment. Is that a word, Ralph? Diminishment? It is now. Feels good. Yeah. I like it. We're seeing massive drops in the amount of changes, updates, tweaks that accounts need. And not just in performance max, not just in DSA, not just in machine learning driven accounts. Google's optimization is getting better. And so what the media buyer needs to do on a daily basis, and this is where things get really interesting, is if you've got a real proactive media buyer, they're going to kill your campaigns. If you tweak before the machine has the opportunity to learn Every change you make resets learning for the most part. You might be able to do some mild budget adjustments, but every, every major change you make resets learning. And when you reset learning in a machine learning tool, you're not getting lift off. And this is especially important for in-house teams because agencies can sell this narrative the way that I just sold it to you. But for CMOs and director of marketing, for your direct reports, very often what I see is the KPI. And it was a reasonable KPI, by the way two years ago, three years ago, but it's show me what you've done in the account because we can't necessarily measure performance in the short term, obviously. So what changes, updates, optimizations have you made? And if that's the way you're managing your people, you are asking them to ruin things. It's like hiring a stockbroker and saying, hey, Ralph, here's the money I need you to manage. I'm going to need you to make 10 trades a day. And now this poor fool it's like, well, dude, things are down. I don't know that I want to necessarily sell while it's down because then we lose money, but you're forcing them into, so I had to sell today while everything was down and tomorrow it's all going to spike and I'm going to have to buy tomorrow because I have the 10 trade a day mandate. That's where everybody is. So in a really interesting twist of fate, the new job now is knowing when not to work, which is most of the time. And the day traders are really good analogy. Most of the time, good traders aren't trading. I forgot, I'm going to get this wrong, but I'm going to get the gist right. Something like 80% of Warren Buffett's net worth came from two trades. So the majority or whatever came from like a very minimal number of trades. And media buying is turning into something very, very similar. And if you're a client employing an agency, make sure you have the same expectations. Everybody needs to change their paradigm. The agency, the in-house team, the end clients, the freelancers, be real careful about running around doing stuff just for the sake of it, because you're not justifying your existence. You're actually doing the opposite. Why is it that media buyers have an issue with this? And I'm just, I'm not talking just about Google. We can talk about the meta side as well. And I've got a couple of examples there, but what is it? Is it substantiation of the job? Is it psychological? Is it emotional? Is it like, what is it in your opinion? I think it's all of the above. People want to work. You pay me to do something and I want to feel good about having done it. So I think that there's a pre-existing establishment of what it means to participate in that particular exchange of services, that trade. It used to be, hey, you give me money and I do this work. 
And now it's you give me money and I watch and see whether or not work needs to be done. And so it's a paradigm shift. There are other industries that have taken to that just fine. But because we're in the grooves that we're in, it's hard to get out of those ruts. So I think that's one piece. I think people want to be able to justify their existence. And, you know, if I ask you, what have you done today? Dude, you know, even when I'm busy, when I've just been working my fingers to a knob and somebody comes in and says, hey, what have you been done today? I get, I'm like, oh, whoa, yeah, ah. and then like, you know, you look at your calendar and task list and you're sent emails and you start trying to like justify yourself. And the person's question was probably innocuous. It was probably benign. But for whatever reason, I think we all have those insecurities. And so take those insecurities and then amplify them by the fact that you actually not only didn't do anything today, but you shouldn't be doing anything today. And I also think it speaks to the forced obsolescence that's on the horizon. On a long enough timeline, and this, I'm sorry to be saying what I'm saying, on a long enough timeline, this problem exacerbates itself in direct proportion to the improved efficiency of these machine learning mechanisms. So does that mean you won't need media buyers? No, that just means less media buyers can handle more accounts. And it sucks to be on the receiving end of that efficiency. You know what I mean? For the clients or even sometimes for the agencies, if you're on the right end of the fulcrum, if you're on the input end of the fulcrum, it's great for you. You have increased leverage. If you're on the output end of the fulcrum, it sucks for you. Because the thing that, you know, it was like, well, man, I used to get paid X to handle 20 accounts. And now I'm getting paid half of X to handle 50 accounts. And I can only see that getting worse. So I understand why the end user, the technician is hesitant to opt into this narrative, but it's just what it is, man. It's the fact. And you're talking primarily on the Google side. Google's less creative heavy and Google's doing a better job. Well, I'll say this and then I'll qualify my statement. Google has less creative requirements, which means it's easier to automate. And it does a better job at creating creative images and video and text. And I think it does a better job because the creative requirements are lower. So Facebook needs actually not to be redundant, but it needs creative, creative. The creative has to be creative instead of Facebook. Google, it needs to be linear, direct, obvious. So you just take the value propositions on the site and you, you put them in bullet points and it's like, bam, we have our creative. With Facebook, you need like an interesting hook and a pivot because it's interrupter marketing. Even for Google's interrupter networks like Google Display or YouTube, it's not interrupter the way that Facebook is interrupter marketing because it allows for a greater degree of permeation and penetration over time. Facebook, you don't get nearly as many bats, nearly as many impressions. And so Google can kind of rely on the fact that I've just been in front of you 500,000 times. And so Google is just far easier to automate. Facebook, however, is close behind. And for my agency owners out there, if you, and I'm talking to you as somebody who's in this business, by the way, it's the reason I sold my agency. It's one of the reasons, but we'll call it one of the primary reasons. If you are a solo channel agency, your days are numbered period full stop. So you either need to expand horizontally, expand vertically, or both. Or if you're lucky enough, go make an exit because you're working on the section of the assembly line that we just saw automated. And it has been automated, by the way. It's just a matter of time before it's automated across every level of analysis. And you can see that in, in various areas. You know, there are industries where it's like, man, you just hook up your URL and give Google your credit card and say go and it goes. And anything that's not working is because those specific nuances haven't been worked out by Google, but they will be. And so you have to do what you've done, Ralph, which is like expand into post-click or look at multi-channel or really niche down into attribution. And so we did it at Solutions 8, by the way. You know, even though I sold the agency, it still needs to be profitable. And I still believe very strongly in our service offering. And so at Solutions 8, if you hire us today, one of the prerequisites to being our client is we will not optimize on in-app reporting. 
You can't come to me and say, oh, I want this CPA, I want this ROAS, I want this cost per lead. It doesn't matter. Everything's based off of MER, uh, which is media efficiency ratio. And we are, I think, the best in the world. And I really mean that, by the way. And I would actually challenge, I'd love to play this game. I'd love to find other people that think they're better at attribution than we are and have like a public attribution face-off. And we'll find a way to make that control group fair because there's nobody that knows attribution the way specifically my business partner and his team of strategists know attribution. And so that's our value proposition now is, yeah, we can run your ads. That's the easy part. But how are you going to know where the impact came from, what the influence looked like, what lever to pull, what to not ratchet up, what to ratchet down? And so you have to expand beyond just the button pushing because the machines are now doing the buttons. And however it is you decide to do that, you know, maybe it is going back to the creative piece, or maybe it is funnels or post-conversion or follow-up or, you know, just getting offering a broader service, but standalone service provision is too far niched and we just got took by the machines. Still needs to have somebody overseeing it though. I mean, in that case of the seven months, no touchy, you still need a caretaker, so to speak, but do you need an expensive caretaker? Depends on the account. Depends on the complexity. Like I said, I should be speaking on timelines. Right now, you still need an ads agency, manager, freelancer, employee, whatever. In a year, two, three, four, five, dude, I don't know. You probably still need somebody looking things over, but that one person went from being able to manage 20 accounts to being able to manage 20,000. With a software tool that just monitors KPIs, it's got depressing, didn't it, Ralph? No, I don't think so. I think it's a hard truth for people to accept, and media buyers in particular, is that the more work you do, oftentimes, the less effective you actually are. Busy, there's a badge of honor with being busy. You know what I mean? It's a validation of you doing the work, so to speak. Whereas letting the machines actually do most of the work is counterintuitive to, I think we all thought for Google media buyers, it was going to be much more of a bigger transition because with search and with pay-per-click in the past, there has been an element of like, let's be tweaking this constantly, you know, putting in your negative keywords and thinking of new areas in which to expand your market with new custom keywords and all those sorts of things. But then Performance Max sort you know, of... Can I, give, I want to tackle both those examples right now because they're perfect, perfect, perfect examples. So it's adding negative keywords, sculpting, and then adding new audiences. Sculpting, we don't even believe in keyword sculpting beyond the massively obvious because I can't tell you how many times terms that would have been included on a negatives list ended up resulting in conversions. A very specific example, we have a client who sells hammocks. One of the highest performing phrases for them is hammocks made in the USA. And by highest performing, I mean highest converting. So it's not by volume, but by quality. Their hammocks are made in Thailand. But when somebody says hammocks made in the USA, they're probably looking for just a higher quality hammock. Well, you get to these hammocks, they're handmade, they're two, $300. Yellow leaf hammocks, by the way, go, go, go buy yellow leaf hammock. They help take women out of poverty in Thailand by teaching them a skilled trade. It's a phenomenal company. But that would have been on their negative keyword list. So you don't want a negative keyword sculpt any longer. Again, beyond the obvious, there are some exceptions to these rules because the machine's going to go figure out where you were wrong. And then as far as the audience expansion, the machine does that for you. Look at Performance Max Insights. It's unbelievable. It's a miracle of marketing. It comes to you and says, hey, this audience is performing 35 times higher than any audience you've given us. We're going to add this, by the way, automatically. You just need to watch it do that. And if you go try to get in its way, you're just going to get in its way. Yeah, 100%. I think one of the best examples from our perspective, which we always sort of think back to because it relates back to where 
all of social is going right now for expansion and for scale is URL expansion on Performance Max. Bro. I think it's one of the most badass tools like ever created. Yeah, so scary. Maybe you can talk about that. It has transformed some of our customer accounts just because it went against the popular wisdom of like, oh, they don't need that. We don't need to bid on hammocks made in the USA because we're smarter than the algorithm. When in fact, all we're doing is just sending them to a sales page, sending them to a landing page, sending them to the, the home page, maybe the collection page, maybe the product page, whatever it happens to be. And all of a sudden, content now is the thing that actually is the first touch that leads to the sale. And URL expansion is absolutely amazing. Yeah. So if you're listening and you don't know, final URL expansion is the setting inside of Google specific to performance max, but I believe cascading to other campaigns that says you don't choose where the traffic goes. Google does, which is counterintuitive to a degree that when I first saw it, I'm like, there's no way. There's just no way. So for example, let's say you're, you're selling blue light blocking glasses. You would assume all ads should go to your buy my blue blocker page, the product, the checkout, add to cart and checkout. But nay, maybe Google wants to sell them to case study, send them to case study page, testimonial about mission, vision, values, a specific blog written for people with glaucoma or another one written for those with lead poisoning. Because there's a bunch of reasons that you'd need blue blockers and people are at varying degrees of the funnel. And so giving Google the ability to decide from a content perspective where somebody goes, number one, requires the prerequisite there obviously is robust content. But number two, gives Google the opportunity to kind of, it turns it into a salesperson. So you know what? I know a lot about Ralph and I know in order for him to buy this Remarkable 2, he's going to need to know about the strength of that screen. He writes hard. He presses down hard. I've seen him break tips on things before. So I'm going to go send him to this blog about the strength of the Remarkable screen because he cracked his iPad screen and I know that's going to be a concern of his. And that's the type of thing that Google would know. You know what I mean? So it's examples like that it's such a perfect example, Ralph, that reminds you poignantly how much smarter the machine is than us and how we need to get the F out of its way. Yeah. I mean, the answer to that is Advantage Plus campaigns on the meta side, which haven't gone to the performance some, but we did a sort of a summary of this. We didn't really talk about much about Advantage Plus. And Advantage Plus shopping is the thing right now on the e-commerce side of the equation, which is really sort of blowing up, which is a no-touchy let the algorithm kind of performance max doesn't have a URL expansion capability, which is strange to me, unless something has changed in the last 72 hours. But here's the point is that the machines now actually know more than we do as media buyers. And I don't think that's a new statement. I think that's always been the case. The machines are so good at doing your job as a media buyer, you have to allow it to happen. And in the case of just a recent case of ours, where we literally didn't touch campaigns for a whole month, and inside our Wicked Reports reporting, we look at May versus June, results are up 25%. And it's because of the no-touch campaign. It's because the fact that we allowed a lot of these campaigns to actually start working. And this is a number of customer accounts, not just one. But the point is, is it's a new way of looking and thinking about how you as a media buyer operate, is that you set it up and then you actually necessarily forget it. 
I hate to say that because it's not. No, it's the opposite. You set it up and then you monitor it like it's on life support. The media buyer needs to get really good at analytics, really good at attribution. Attribution should be tattooed on the forearm of every media buyer. And then anytime they forget, they should be smacked in the face with their own arm. So you notice that when Han Solo flips the Millennium Falcon into hyperspace or hits the hyperdrive, he doesn't like go and have lunch. He is sitting at the seat. Sitting, yeah. He's just not touching any of the controls. <laughs> he crashes so often though. I don't think he's a good example. I'd rather go with, like data from Star Trek. Well, I don't think he ever he didn't he's crash. The machine. Yeah, he didn't crash anything, you know, that I am aware of. Like let's, you know, no, Han crashes all the time. He's hitting things and the satellite got hit off. No, and- not in hyperspace though. You're probably right. I hand that to you. You're the, the hyperdrive sometimes does not work. That is the problem. And I'm not exactly sure why the hyperdrive doesn't work. But anyway, I'm not a hyperdrive aficionado, nor do I fix them in my nor spare time. Nor should you be, Ralph. That's nor the should point. I be. Let, I don't yeah. really care. All I know is that he's sitting on the chair. He's in the captain's seat. He's just not touching anything on the control panel. So I like what you just said in the captain's seat. What media buyers should be looking at their job as though they're the general viewing the battlefield and seeing how all the pieces are coming together instead of they're the soldier on the battlefield trying to accomplish this one task. You have to zoom out. What do things look like? How are they interacting? What's a synergistic environment? Where are things playing off of each other symbiotically? Where do they feel like they're fighting? Which again, goes back to attribution. That's all attribution is. And that becomes the new job of media buying. It's analysis, it's measurement, it's reviews. I mean, shoot, if you want to feel like you're doing something, just every day write down a report on why you didn't do something. You know, let's say we're monitoring the top of funnel campaigns, which are performing phenomenally. The click-through rate is above expectation. The on-page engagement looks to be really solid. And I'm hoping that tomorrow we start to see some stronger conversions so I can measure the efficacy of the remarketing campaign. Full stop. Yep. That's it. And by the way, if you want me to change anything, fine, but now it all resets. Right. Yeah. And it's learning phase. I think the stat from Meta is learning phase, you should only have 20 to 30% of your campaigns in learning phase. I'll have to double check that. I'll leave, I'll leave a link in the show notes on that. I, it's off the top of my head. The point is, is that means that you're touching it too much or you're launching too many things. You're trying to test too many things. And you're resetting the learning, which is really screwing up. In our case, you know, we think it's 55,000 data points that they have on every user. For Google, we know it's 72 million demographic and psychographic factors on every human on the planet. I think the Facebook algorithm is super sharp, but Google has got the goods on Facebook as far as algorithms go and how many data points it has on each one of us as a human, which even makes our case for not touching even more so on the Google side. And I think this is a huge takeaway for people is not to touch things and just to let it ride. Now, in defense of media buyers, I will say that there is a counter argument to all of this, which we're going to get to right after this quick break. Hey, do you want to work with the best client-focused agency in the world? I mean, one that helps purpose-driven businesses achieve their vision? Well, it's time you check out Tier 11 as a career choice. Right now, we are hiring for a lot of different positions, but the most important one right now is our client success owner. The CSO is one of the most important positions at Tier 11 because they're the linchpin between our clients and our team who ensures smooth communication and excellence in service delivery. When I built this company 10 plus years ago, I always wanted to have a virtual organization that has strong company culture and a client-centered focus that 
really took things to the next level, but also enabled purpose-driven businesses to achieve their vision through what we do every single day through customer acquisition amplification. So if this sounds like you and you have the skills required to be an awesome client success owner, head on over to tier 11 forward slash jobs, tier11.com forward slash jobs, fill out the CSO application. We'd love to talk to you about how you can take your career and our client success to the next level. All right, so we're back. We've been talking about why your job is not doing your job as media buyer. This is media buying in the 21st century, 2023, as of this date. And a lot of media buyers have a challenge with this, especially in an agency environment. And the number one reason is, and I'm going to defend all the media buyers that are out there, that you are guilty of this and you have to resist this, is that you have a demanding client that is constantly trying to get you to a CPA, a ROAS goal, whatever it happens to be, a MER goal. And you think the best thing to do is to just constantly be testing and tweaking. When in fact, the thing that you should be doing is not testing and tweaking your campaigns. It should be managing your client. It's firing the client. (laughs) Well, if they get to the point where they say you need to be doing stuff every single day and you're like, hey, well, I'm doing stuff by not doing stuff because that's actually going to help you grow your business and they never get it, and all they want to do is just denigrate you because you're not doing it, and they're looking back in history as like, what is this guy doing all day? I don't see any changes. I don't see him in there, and you can go back in through history in your meta platform. I'm sure Google has the same sort of thing. There's no activity for weeks at a time. That's what media buyers are scared of. They're scared of them looking as if they're not taking care of the campaigns. And I have had instances where media buyers have set stuff up. This is long ago. <laughs> this is like four or five years ago. I had one media buyer and I took this to the extreme. She's like, oh, I'm going to set up a launch campaign for probably one of our most favorite clients. I think I we ever got at Tier 11. And I will say this right now. And then she went on a trip. She got on a plane and that plane ride was one of those like 36-hour deals like when I flew to Thailand and nobody was looking at the campaigns. And the campaigns ended up shooting leads towards all these countries like Uganda, Nigeria, Egypt, all these opt-ins for this launch. This is five years ago. Right? Like We would never do this ever again. But the point was is she like said it and forget it in the wrong way. You have to set it up correctly to begin with. You can't just rely on the algorithm to know where your leads are going to be coming from. And obviously, if you're a US-based company and you're doing an opt-in campaign or a lead gen campaign, you got to choose like the big six. You got to choose, you got to put the inputs in there that are correct. So there is that. So that even performance max like has to be set up in the right way. And that's where the intelligence comes. And that the next level intelligence is letting it ride and trusting your instincts that you know what you're doing and being able to change course when things do go south, because they do happen occasionally. Well, and knowing what to change. Knowing what to change as well. Dude, I can't tell you how many times a Google campaign starts to fail. And what we need to do is not tweak the Google campaign. It's to boost the Facebook campaign. Because a good media buyer looks at it and says, oh, this Google campaign is living off of the top of funnel traffic being created inside of Facebook. As the Google campaign fails, if you're myopic in scope, you're like, all right, I got to go tweak my Google campaign. No, you don't. Go put more money into Facebook. Yeah. 
or talk to your other agency that's using Facebook or the internal team or whatever it happens to be. It's like all working together. I mean, that's the true, we call it traffic harmonization in Tier 11. It's like that's when it really does happen. It's like you're harmonizing and you actually understand attribution. Okay, This doesn't necessarily mean you need to use a third-party tool. In our case, we do use third-party tools that accentuate this and help. And now those third-party tools are going to have AI involved as well now to be able to sort of point out like where things should be stay the same, maybe should be killed, and maybe should be scaled. So there is that. But in most cases, it's leave it alone, especially when you're talking about some of these newer campaign types, Advantage Plus campaigns inside Meta. Advantage Plus shopping right now is a tremendous tool, and there's about 30 other Advantage Plus tools coming down the line surprise, surprise, like in all different areas. Right now, it's focused on e-commerce and you know shopping and those types of experiences. And I think it's an answer really to the performance max question, which is- It feels that way. It feels very informed. Yes, absolutely. So case in point of this, this is for all our media buyers out there that are listening. And maybe, maybe some CMOs and some VPs in marketing, they're also listening and saying, why is my media buyer doing more stuff? Well- we have an attorney. We do a lot of stuff in the personal injury space. Like we're really, really good at it. I would say the best in the world at it, which is really cool. But you know what it involves, Custom? A lot of waiting. Especially with an industry like that, the CPCs are so high, the visibility is so expensive. Just to reach critical mass, you got to like really be patient. So in this case, we set up campaigns exactly counterintuitive to the way that the old school Google PPC guys would set it up. And we did it in the new way, the way that you guys do it, all performance max, really. I mean, some search campaigns, some blended, obviously. The point is, is that we set these up in February and the media buying team who has been running this understands this no touchy philosophy and has been sort of boxing with the client for three to four months now, February, March, April, May, June, they just signed five cases, five cases. It took four to five months for the algorithm to finally figure it out. And it was a waiting game. And each month we're spending, you know, 30 plus K per month. This is not an insignificant spend. But now they got their fifth retainer just yesterday. And it's because we played this game and because the media buyer is on the account, his name's Ollie, he's fucking brilliant. The point is, is that he held off the client and did a really good job there. We also have a customer success team, but I mean, they are fairly hands-on. And in this case, like this is the most expensive, these are $100 plus clicks. These cases in this particular state, and you know the state extremely well, I guess I sort of gave it away, is anywhere between $5,000 to $80,000 per case. These are auto accident, personal injury cases. Like these are legit cases. These aren't slip and falls. They aren't workman's comp things, legit cases. Now. In the personal injury space, like every one, I don't know what the exact figure it is. It's about like one in a hundred, maybe a one in 200. You get one of those like $10 million cases. And that just makes you as a. As somebody a mows down a bus full of nuns. and Right. <laughs> right. Not even that. Like that. I mean, there's just, you know, huge, huge settlements that can be made. I mean, obviously the insurance companies are the ones that are paying this in a lot of cases. But the point is, is that these campaigns are now starting to do what they were intended to do. But a lot of it was waiting. And it infuriated the client because they said, why aren't you doing this? Why aren't you touching up your negative keywords? Why aren't you doing all these other sorts of things? Like a whole list of all the things that you guys probably need to do. 
and you probably need your clients have the same issue. This was a very intense case study for us. And it's going to continue to draw new revenue for this organization because they waited, because they were patient, and because the media buyer and our CS team sort of held things off. I'm not saying that to tout tier 11. I'm saying that as an example of what you should do as a media buyer. And if you don't wait, if you don't trust the algorithm as a client or as a business and allow the Facebook algorithm, the meta algorithm, and the Google algorithm to do its work, you're doing yourself a disservice as a business. Yeah. Well, and doing your client a disservice. All right. Well, that is this week's show, Why Your Job is Not Doing Your Job. And we're going to leave some links in the show notes for all of that. And hopefully this empowers a few media buyers out there to take back control, I think, to a certain degree, but also businesses and VPs of marketing and directors of marketing to understand that this is the new reality in which we live. And I think this is just going to become more and more of this is how it's done. We didn't talk about how Facebook and how Meta is so powerful from like you need to have creative on the front end. You need to insert something in the front end still in order for that algorithm and for the media buyer to be effective. Like we are seeing that 100%. But the day-to-day touching of the campaigns is far less now than it ever has been. I still do think that the creative creates the audiences, all those sorts of things on the front end. That's a whole other show. But if you can sort of wrap your head around the concepts that we talked about in today's show, I think you're headed in the right direction from a additional marketing and advertising perspective. So like I said, we will leave links all in the show notes over at perpetualtraffic.com. Make sure that you subscribe and leave a rating wherever you're listening. We haven't mentioned anyone recently. We'd love to give a shout out to anyone who has left us a positive rating. I think we're a little bit behind there, Kasim. We'll maybe hit that on next show. Let us know what we can do better over at perpetualtraffic.com forward slash better. Follow me on LinkedIn. That's Ralph Burns and Kasim at Kasim Aslam on Twitter. Go back and listen to previous episodes and make sure you check out our YouTube channel, which we will leave links in the show notes for as well. We've got a lot of resources there. On behalf of my awesome co-host, Kasim Aslam, peace. Until next show, see ya. You've been listening to Perpetual Traffic. 